Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Last week, I went up to New York City to attend the Summer Fancy Food Show, which is one of the best trade shows for spotting emerging trends in the food and beverage industry. And with thousands of exhibitors showcasing everything from baked goods and snacks to confections and savory meats, there was a lot to take in. But over the course of three very busy days, I talked with dozens of entrepreneurs and established brands to identify a few overarching trends that cut across categories. A few that really stood out to me was the versatile use of coffee, pumpkin, quinoa, whiskey, and fermentation. So let's tackle these one by one, starting with coffee. Now when I say coffee, I'm not just talking about what most of us pour into our mugs every morning, although there was a lot of that too. Rather, the coffee was featured prominently as an ingredient or flavor in products across categories, including in chocolate bars, frozen desserts, baked goods, and even mints. One of the most innovative uses of coffee that I saw at the show was by Seattle Chocolate Company, which uses coffee flour as a key ingredient in two bars that it makes under its Seattle Chocolates brand and under its J. Coco brand. A marketing manager for Seattle Chocolates explained to me what coffee flour is and why the company was drawn to it as an ingredient. Coffee flour is made from the fruit pulp that grows around a coffee bean. So think of it similar to like a cherry where you have that that nut in the middle or the coffee bean and then that fleshy fruit that grows around it. so we're working with Coffee Flower, the company, um, and they found a way to stabilize that fruit, which was formerly a waste byproduct of coffee production, um, and it gets dried and milled into a powder or a flour, as they call it. Um, and so they approached us um, a little over a year ago, and we're looking for a new way to incorporate it into something. Um, and so we took the leap and said, well, let's give it a try. So. Um, And it turns out it's extremely nutritious, so it's really high in iron and protein and potassium and fiber. Um, So it gives everything it's added to a really nice nutritional boost. Um, And it's also then reducing that environmental impact. It's really great for the local economies of where they're getting the coffee flour, the coffee fruit from. Um, Because farmers were formerly paid only for the bean, and this was sitting on their property then and rotting away and not really doing anything other than polluting rivers and streams and things like that. So now they get a year-round wage because they're paid for the fruit and the cherry. Um, So we launched our initial bar with coffee flour back in February through our J. Coco brand, and it has um, the bean, the coffee, the espresso, as well as the coffee flour, so it's a waste-neutral bar. Um, it has a really nice kind of smoky flavor profile because of the coffee flour. Um, and it's in a 60% dark chocolate, which reads a little bit darker because of that way those tannins are interacting with each other in cocoa and coffee flour together. Um, and our newest bar that we're launching at the show is through our Seattle Chocolates line. So it's a truffle bar. It's got a smooth melt-away center. Um, and this has more coffee flour than we initially did in the J. Coco bar because we wanted to kind of take it another step further and sort of push that initiative. Um, and this comes with roasted cocoa nibs. She also explained that the Seattle Chocolate Company was drawn to partnering with Coffee Flower to create the chocolate bar because both companies share a value of giving back to communities. 
to us, it's chocolate's another way of kind of breaking bread and sharing and then having an experience with people and things like that. So it was, well, how do we keep this moving forward? How do we keep, you know, giving back, which is part of what this line does all the time. So for every bar that's purchased, we donate a serving of food to a local food bank. Um, and part of what Coffee's Flower Initiative is, which is why they were such a great partner to us and appealed to us, is that they leave more than half of Coffee Flower at source to help feed and give that nutritional benefit to the local regions that they're working in. Um, so we added more Coffee Flower to this to try and extend that impact. Um, and the roasted cocoa nibs give it, cocoa nibs give it a really great texture and flavor and a nice crunch. Um, so, so far it's been great. Uh, we couldn't be happier, um, you know, and we're really hoping to just kind of see where the partnership develops from here. Taking a step back, she also weighed in on what is driving consumers' emerging interest in all things coffee, and especially coffee and chocolates. I think people are finally understanding how complex it is, and it's the same thing with chocolate. I mean, it's, you've walked the show, I'm sure you've seen, there's a lot of chocolate coming out, and they are extremely complex, and more so than wine, more so than, you know, a lot of those products that are out there that have, you know, rating scales and are very detailed and explained and coffee and chocolate are still kind of being discovered and people are still understanding that you get very different flavors and profiles and experiences based on where they're coming from or how they're processed and how they're made. Um, I mean, even with coffee flour itself, you get a different fl flavor profile and a very different color of a product depending on where it's coming from. So, you know, in it it interacts with chocolate differently based on where it's coming from. So I think, you know, that has a lot to do with it. Um, and just kind of the, the consumer understanding of what goes into making coffee and what goes into making chocolate. Coffee also turned up in some unexpected places, including in so-called mints made by the French farm that were launching in America at the show. Francie Simpson, a marketing manager with the French farm, explained that French mints which are known in France as old-fashioned candies, are attracting consumers' attention because they come in delicately designed tins that can easily be stashed in purses or wallets for a quick hit of coffee flavor anywhere and at any point in the day. These in the middle are anise seeds, and they're sugar-coated with natural, so for other ones it's like aromas or flavors, and for this it's coffee. Um, and it takes two weeks to make each flavor. Um, and so they build into like little pearls. People love them. There is enough of a coffee following in the U.S. where people are becoming more and more coffee connoisseurs. They like French presses. They're, it's becoming more of like a mainstay in the foodie world that I think it She also explained that consumers' growing interest in coffee flavor products is an outgrowth of their interest in where their food is coming from. People are caring where their food is coming for coming from more and coffee as most people know is it's like cocoa it's one of those that where it's kind of like dark and hidden on where your coffee beans come from and so people have started to care and with that comes okay now I care what it tastes like I care what's in it and I care where it comes from and so I think that's a big part of it and it's obviously not just for drinking no <laughs> absolutely not and that comes with like chocolate flavored coffee beans and the espresso beans and the coffee liqueur candies. I feel like that's becoming more prominent. 
A subtrend of the larger coffee movement in America is a growing obsession with cold brew coffee, which is made by soaking coffee grounds in cold water for 12 to 18 hours to create a smoother, sweeter flavor profile that's not as acidic as hot brew coffee. In the last few years, several brands have launched ready-to-drink cold brew options with and without added sweeteners and cream. At the Summer Fancy Food Show, plant-based beverage company Califia Farms threw its hat into the cold brew ring with the launch of its Nitro Cold Brew line, which combines almond milk and macadamia milk with cold brew coffee and a jolt of nitrogen for a slightly sweet cold brew latte that foams up similar to a dark draft beer. Califia further sets its product apart from the competitors in the cold brew space by packaging its latte in aluminum bottles wrapped in sleek white labels that clearly identify the three different flavors, including latte, mocha, and New Orleans. As beverage companies continue to fill up the refrigerated section and the center store shelves with variations of cold brew, ice pop maker Brewlaw is ensuring consumers can also find cold brew in the freezer section. The founder and president of Brula, Dan Dengrove, explained to me the inspiration behind Brula's latest launch. Cold brew just tastes better, and uh, we make ice pops, so it's just like the perfect combination of cold. So we like to say, wake up and lick the coffee, and that's exactly what you'll do with the Brula barista is what we call it. It's got a really rich, indulgent, creamy taste. We're blending cold brew coffee with organic whole milk, and it's only 35 calories per pop. So you're almost getting something that's like a coffee ice cream, but without the guilt. It's the perfect treat for summer or any day. There's a little bit of caffeine, so we uh, we kind of noticed that people didn't want caffeine in an ice pop, so our, our pop has about 30 milligrams. It's about equivalent to a can of Coke. Um, so it's, it's as low as it can be. Okay. It's not going to give you a jolt, but... Um, if you need a little bit, I guess it's there. So maybe a good afternoon snack? Perfect afternoon snack. Even an evening dessert. It's your treat any day. Another sub-part of the larger coffee trend is the proliferation of companies offering different takes on butter coffee, which is coffee that combines butter and coconut oil and is used by some as a meal replacement. Others tout coffee butter as a healthy alternative to coffee with cream and sugar. One of the companies in this space that was at the fancy food show is Coffee Blocks, which combines all the ingredients for coffee butter in a single-serve squeeze pack. Stephen Kiefer, who helped co-found Coffee Blocks, explained how butter coffee and how Coffee Blocks in particular fit into this larger macro trend. We are really strong on the side of let's make sure that whatever coffee people do consume that it is actually a healthy coffee, healthy to begin with. We don't want to see people add a bunch of sugar to their first drink in the morning and start their day out like that on a basically on a sugar cycle. So yeah, while coffee is trending, that's good, that's, that's all good. It's not that good if everybody drinks more and more coffee and adds a bunch more creamer and sugar to it. We don't need that. We have enough sugar issues in our food, you know, in this country already. So 
we're trying to solve that first. Yeah. In the last couple of maybe year or so, I've seen several Kickstarter campaigns doing their twist on bullet. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the competitive landscape and where you see that going? Yeah, I mean, we we were Kickstarter ourselves initially. Um, I think there are more and more you know people coming out competitors to us actually as a butter coffee, which is great. It's good to see. I don't see them as competitors right now. I see them as you know, we're helping. We're all crusaders of the same cause, really. So it's exciting for us to see that. Yeah. Um, we need more more people coming out with healthy good products it's this convenient meets health space I think it's healthy is one thing if you can't build health into your daily routine then who cares like if you don't consume it daily then what good does the healthy product do well and this is not easy to make from scratch it's not that easy to make from scratch and this is where this idea came from you know we were consumers of butter coffee before Tom is actually the creator, not me. We made this from scratch in the morning. I have a family of kiddos, jobs, running out of the house. It's not easy. It's a big, takes time, about 20 minutes to make, but also it's a cleanup process involved. Not with this. You literally squeeze it into a hot water container and shake it up. We shake it up in a clean canteen or something, and it's like a 30 second process with the you got coffee. Walking through the Summer Fancy Food Trade Show also revealed that America's love affair with pumpkin spice is still going strong, but it's also evolving beyond just sweet products to include spicy and savory options across categories. Companies also are starting to use pumpkin seeds and pumpkin flesh more, so not just the spice blend. A good example of this is Renfro Foods, which launched at the show a pumpkin salsa. The company's president, Doug Renfro, explains how the flavor profile commonly associated with sweet desserts and decadent coffee drinks translates to a savory salsa. He also talks about how this shift opens the door for even more pumpkin products in the future. You wonder what should pumpkin salsa taste like, and as we were playing with it, you have to compete with onion and garlic and jalapenos, so what I really went for was pumpkin pie overtones, so you'll pick up on cinnamon and all the things in pumpkin pie. And what happens is people are tasting it, they're instantly going, oh yeah, that's pumpkin, because your brain thinks back to holidays and to autumn and pumpkin pie, and they just they smile because it makes them feel good. So your product is not just pumpkin spice, it's not just the flavors, it's actually pumpkin. Well, there's pumpkin puree in every jar, because you want to have the consistency so that people can dip it on a chip or marinate with it, or we're thinking shredded chicken in a slow cooker. You know, we love people to cook with a product. So yes, there is actual pumpkin in the jar, as well as pumpkin spices. So that kind of sets you apart from a lot of the pumpkin. I think so. I, and it's not a big population. I did research beforehand and I bought all the pumpkin salsas, which was like three, one of which had already been discontinued. One was called pumpkin chipotle, and I swear it only tasted like chipotle. So the pumpkin, to me, it's a gimmick if you can't taste it. When I go into a restaurant and I get a tequila lime sauce on my halibut, if I don't taste tequila and lime, I get offended because you were just sexing up the menu. You know, I, I need you to actually taste the components or don't put it in the name. So that's an interesting idea because I think in America, a lot of us think pumpkin, we think pumpkin spice. Mm -hmm. um, what does pumpkin taste like? How would you describe that? Pumpkin is more subtle. I, I'm cursed to have to eat really nicely at these trade shows for research and I had scallops on a bed of pumpkin puree the other night morel mushrooms and that pumpkin puree under the scallops I could really taste there was nothing competing with it and again when sort of like our peach salsa when you throw it in with salsa components 
it's hard to taste just the one item. So you've got pineapple juice, brown sugar, I mean, depending on the salsa, we've got multiple things coming at you in a number of ways, and that's due to the nature of the beast. Pumpkin salsa on a soft chicken taco, you're not going to pick up just like you ate a pumpkin out of the garden. And you shouldn't, because that's not the application. What I'm curious about, though, is is America ready to take this next step in pumpkin? In my opinion, yes, because there's almost nothing that has not already had pumpkin added to it. And I'm seeing pumpkin cupcakes, pumpkin coffee, pumpkin this, pumpkin that. The other day I saw something, I thought, really? You know, I forget what it was. Maybe it was Tuscan white fish dip. I don't know. Something exotic. You're like, didn't realize we could put pumpkin in there. I really don't think that there's anything you cannot pumpkinize at this point. So is the market saturated? No, it's America. Uh, just when you think it's saturated, you find something you're like, wow, never thought of that. Another company that's exploring pumpkin's savory side is Urban Accents. The spice company showcased at the Fancy Food Show a trio of pumpkin-based simmer sauces that underscore pumpkin's versatility for flavor profiles from around the world. Jim Digas, owner and president of Urban Accents, explained to me why the company chose pumpkin as its base ingredient for its new simmer sauces. We decided to use pumpkin as kind of a universal because it's pumpkin and squash is a staple in Asian cuisines and South American and Mexican, so it, it works across all of these profiles. We combined our sauces with pumpkin and they have a little tomato base in them, um, but we're using the same spice technology that we used for our uh, dry mixes. And um, we picked curry, tagine, and mole as the introductory flavors for this. All of these are designed around just chicken thighs, um, or you can use vegetables, butternut squash or chickpeas, a quick saute in a uh, pan, and it's like 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And, and then we really encourage, because our customers still want to cook. They want to slice and chop, and, and so we give you really great uh, garnish ideas, like for the mole, pepitas and scallions and cilantro for the curry and that. And so we kind of encourage experimentation on top, but if you just want to have just the sauce and a chicken over rice, it's fantastic. I think it's really interesting because it seems like you're sort of tapping into two trends. And I want to talk first about the pumpkin, but then about the ethnic trends that we're seeing this like explosion and exotic flavors. Um, but I want to start with pumpkin because I think it's really been an interesting slow build over the last couple of years. And I'm curious to what extent you think it's coming from the interest in pumpkin spice and sort of how that's evolved into actually just pumpkin and maybe what the differences are. Yeah, we, um, about 15 years ago, we had developed a pumpkin cocoa and uh, it was delicious and I didn't sell a drop of it. And I think people were fearful at that time that, you know, like, the idea of sweet and savory together was just weird. And then Starbucks came along and Dunkin' Donuts, and now uh, pumpkin and cocoa are in, within sweet products are it's a pretty big staple. Um, bringing kind of complex flavors into that pumpkin base it, it was exciting for us. And as, as we'd like to call our ethnic products more accessible ethnic, because there's a billion great, you know, Indian companies and individual, but ours, um, we've kind of fine-tuned the flavors for the American palate. And 
for years, in the last few years, like right after the economy dropped in 2008, everybody went back to safe foods. You know, it was very, it was American comfort foods, buyers were afraid to go ethnic, and now we've seen as the economy has come back, we've seen the rise of ethnic again. And not just, that's one reason, but you know, the population is changing. The uh, younger people in the population are being exposed to more via cooking channel and, and tasting made videos and things. So. It's it's no longer a scary thing to bring mole home, you know. It's or or, or for a tiny fringe. I think more people are being exposed to it in in more ways. And as you talked about, you made it really easy. I know whenever I've made mole or Indian food from scratch, it's a disaster because I'm measuring cardamom pods and yes. I'm grinding them, and it's always soapy and awful at the yeah. end. We we that's that's kind of from the beginning of when we started the company. Um, we wanted to do convenience cuisine, but that wasn't just complete like frozen food or whatever that you still wanted to cook. But um, I'm intimidating. I'm intimidated when we do a full Indian recipe and it's got 900 ingredients. First of all, I don't have most of the ingredients, so I'm like in in small neighborhood uh, markets. But we've taken the core. We have outside culinary people working on it. We have our internal teams, and we try to figure out what the heart of that recipe is. So you know it. Are a, a, a mole that is authentic and that from Mexico does take all day to cook and it's just spectacular. We still have great guajillo peppers in ours and there's a lot of garlic and we've used a, a cocoa um, that's a kind of a medium cocoa. It's not a super dark so there's not that bitter flavor so it is a little bit more um, it's. I think it's more palatable to the general public. We, we get people that come by here and say I hate curry and taste our pumpkin curry and they're like oh this is delicious this is curry because it's a sweet curry you know it's not a heavy and you didn't kill your kitchen <laughs> you know like smoking spices and heating them up and that it, it does it is i think especially for a new york kitchen it's perfect <laughs> um the other thing i want to pull on there is that you talk about um ethnic flavors coming in and more consumers wanting them for various reasons I'm curious what you're seeing in the actual retail store. Do we still have ethnic aisles? Is that where you're placed or is it all being mixed together or how's the facing? That happening? is a great question because there are still ethnic aisles in there, um, but I think ethnic is creeping out of those aisles. So you're seeing more crossover flavors in the pasta aisle. Um, I, I think that's an issue that, um, especially in grocery stores, that they're trying to figure out right now because the ethnic aisle is, is a little bit more um, true imported brands, and we're we're challenged a little bit because we kind of fit there, but then we we really want to be in the cooking sauce aisle. We want when you're making a choice between a chipotle orange glaze or a pumpkin curry glaze for them kind of be, to be accessible in the same areas. You know, because your, your, your real goal is, I want to cook an interesting uh, ethnic meal. I don't necessarily want to say, I'm cooking Indian tonight, go to that aisle, I'm going to Asian in that aisle. Um, but the ex part of the fun part for, be for this line could be, because we're a, a little bit of a more modern brand, um, a lot of those aisles are lacking some innovation, so I think it, it will be uh, fun to see us pop in those aisles as well. Just as more companies are starting to use the flesh of pumpkins in their products, so too are companies embracing the vegetable seed as a nutrient-dense, allergy-friendly, and economic alternative to nuts. 
Hannah Barnstable, who founded Seven Sundays, says the company uses pumpkin seeds in several of its breakfast items and is exploring more ways to incorporate the ingredient in upcoming products. Seven Sundays is primarily known for mueslis, like we're the leading muesli across the country. We do use pumpkin seeds in just about every one of our blends though. Um, and just recently we launched these grab-and-go muesli squares, and they're meant to be total nutritional powerhouse, um, you know, but, but, but kind of warming or breakfast flavor profiles. So, one of our flavors is our cocoa pumpkin seed. Um, it's made with gluten-free uh, whole grain oats. It's bound with dates, sunflower seed paste, coconut oil, and then it has a bunch of toasted and chopped up pumpkin seeds in there for iron and nutrient boost, um, among some other ingredients, coconut and, and chia and all types of stuff. Everything A breakfast to go. You could have this and a cup of coffee and be solid through the morning, which is nice. Why is pumpkin so popular? What are the benefits of it? Well, I think people are realizing how versatile it is, um, and you're able to, um, it's, it's a very nutrient dense from the seed to the pulp, um, and so people are, are seeing it as, not only is it like a flavor profile that more and more people are like, oh, I want that, you know, like, even as far as smoothies and things and even bigger chains, right? They're coming out with pumpkin-flavored things, especially in the fall. But what we're noticing is um, pumpkin purees, pumpkin seeds are actually kind of becoming more le or less seasonal and more year-round um, because people see the nutritional benefits of it. It's a subtle flavor. It can be put in um, a variety of baked stuff, cereals, um, either for flavoring or nutritional boost or both. Um, it's fairly economical for the nutritional punch, right? So like nuts are great too, but they're expensive and it's hard to amp up, you know, with protein and vitamins and things with nuts because it gets very expensive and there's a lot of nut allergies. Um, pumpkin purees, pumpkin seeds, you know, they're an economical way to boost nutrition and product. Another theme that emerged walking the trade show floor was that quinoa continues to reign as a superfood superstar. Regular listeners will know from our recent episode featuring the co-founder of Alter Eco that quinoa has a long list of health benefits for people and the planet when farmed correctly. But what stood out at the fancy food show was that the ingredient has wide versatility. It's no longer restricted to salads and side dishes. It popped up in smoothie mixes, baked snacks, burgers, pasta, chocolates, so many foods and beverages. One of the many companies launching products with quinoa at the show was Emrita, which introduced dark chocolate quinoa nutrition bars, which are seed-based raw and vegan. A sales representative explained quinoa's vast appeal and how the company is using the ingredient. You know, we're big fans of superfoods. Quinoa is amazing. We use popped quinoa because it gives a little crunch. So it's an it's a organic quinoa that's just popped like a popcorn. And it looks like, you know, there's little pebbles right there. That's all it is. Um, and the reason we use it is because it adds a nice amount of protein and crunch to the bars. Um, all of ours are free of gluten, soy, dairy, corn, eggs. And we made two that are free of sesame. Sesame seems to be an allergen that's on the rise. Uh, and so the quinoa is really nice because it doesn't have any of the allergen attributes. And it has healthy proteins. Um, acts like a grain or tastes like a grain but it's not a grain so um, 
many, many ways. It works really well for us. I think it's interesting because quinoa has been around in the States kind of big for like 10 years. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah. Um, but I'm just starting to see it come out beyond the bag, beyond the salad. Right, because I think quinoa for the longest time has just been quinoa. Like It's like you buy rice and it's just rice, but now there's puff rice, there's all these other things. So they realize that with quinoa they can make quinoa flour, quinoa puff. I think the more they make different forms with quinoa, the more you see uses of quinoa. Because I can't just use just quinoa grain. It's no use, right? And, and I can't use cooked quinoa because it's got water in it. So I have to, the only quinoa I can use is puffed quinoa. So you'll, the more form factors, the more uses you'll see of quinoa. And to what extent is it still really resonating with consumers, like end consumers? I think when we see people come here, they, they really get the word quinoa. And I think it, for us, it would be something that people will pick up the product on the shelf because they recognize it. So, um, so you know, it's, it's, it's an ingredient attribute that I think attracts people to, to look at the product. Another ingredient that kept popping up at the Summer Fancy Food Show was whiskey and bourbon. And I'm not talking about just at the cocktail parties after the show floor closed for the day. Whiskey and bourbon were key ingredients in products ranging from sweets to snacks to savory sides and syrups. One booth that drew a lot of attention from passersby was Nodulous Specialty Foods, which was debuting its Kentucky bourbon pie filling. Company founder Najla Aswad explained what makes bourbon so unique and why chefs are reaching for the bottle more often to add spirit to their creations. The debut product is our Kentucky Bourbon Pie. It's unique to other pie filling categories like this because it's not only made in Kentucky, but it's made with a 12-year-old Kentucky bourbon. And so I've been in Louisville now for 10 years. Um, I decided to stop drinking it and start cooking and packaging it as well. Um, and so as a baker and chef, I wanted to come up with a whole line that started to include bourbon in its base of products. Um, and so the natural fit was for pie. So the bourbon industry has just exploded internationally. And what makes bourbon unique is that it can only be distilled in Kentucky to be called bourbon. It has to, it's whiskey everywhere else, okay. but in Kentucky, it has to be uh, distilled and aged in charred white oak barrels. It's that specific. And so um, it's a fascinating destination spot to learn about the whole industry of bourbon. And then just what it does to food just elevates it. So there's a lot of companies in Kentucky that are using bourbon in their foods that, you know, we all stick close together and protect, you know, just the integrity of what we're doing. but. It's just so innovative in chocolate and in savory and in spices and infused with sugar and it's just, it takes a depth of flavor that a lot of other foods wouldn't have um, using, you know, a rum or a scotch. The bourbon just complements with wheat-based products and sugar-based products. As Aswa notes, bourbon or whiskey isn't restricted to sweets. I also saw it as a star ingredient in Cleveland Kraut's Whiskey Dill Sauerkraut. The Midwestern company describes the product as, quote, spirited sauerkraut with a bite, and it certainly attracted a lot of attention at the show. Cleveland Kraut also taps into two major trends that I spotted at the show, fermented foods and beets. Luke Visnick with Cleveland Kraut explained what he is seeing on the front line with these two trends 
and he took a crack at what's driving consumer interest in fermented and pickled foods. We're seeing uh, the market for fermented foods just in general rising, right? People are aware that there is big health benefits to certain old products. You want to get back to the roots of what, what good food is, and especially the beets. Uh, beets have been blowing up. Beet chips, beet hummus. We've got a, uh, a red cabbage sauerkraut with beets and carrots. So it's a dynamite, great, vibrant color, pop of color on your salad, right? We've got a fermented version of that, so we're hitting a lot of uh, little check boxes, right? Where do you see fermented foods going? Do you think it's a fad or does it have legs? No, like I was saying before, it's a really old product. It's like beer wine, been around since civilization started. Uh, so we see it, it sticking around for a good bit of time. What do you think is driving interest in fermented foods and crowds and uh, just overall well-being, health, right? You see crossfitting, the paleo movement. These are all uh, trends that are elevating people's awareness of what it means to be healthy. And that's just a holistic approach. We think that uh, fermented foods, right? People are fermenting at home. You got home brewers, you got home fermenters, home kombucha makers. Um, and they're just aware that this is a product that's going to be a mind-body uh, amplifier. As I noted at the beginning, these are just a small sample of the products and trends featured at the Fancy Food Show, but they'll be interesting ones to watch in the coming months at Supply Side East and West and over the course of the next few years. And who knows, maybe we'll get a chance to dig deeper into some of these trends in upcoming episodes of Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast. But for now, I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you'll tune in again next week when we look at other emerging trends in the food and beverage space. Until then, I'm Elizabeth Crawford signing off for Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast.